Our scripture lesson this morning will be from Hebrews. I first want to thank you all for the privilege that you have given me to come and share God's word through me. As I had the call to do this, it's about three months ago. For some reason, why I can't tell you, the Lord led me to Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have such a cloud of witnesses surround us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run the race with endurance, the race which is set before us. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame that was set down at the right hand of God the Father by his throne. For consider him who has endured such hostility, sin against himself, so that will not grow weary and lose heart. This is just the first three verses of this reference, and I will be reading more as we go on into the talk. I first want to say that I look at the time and it's only 9.30. So you folks are going to get out early today because I don't think I have a half an hour sermon. Maybe that's good for some people's ears. Maybe it's not. Who knows? The title is Getting There. And this particular title came from two different devotionals that I read out of Oswald Chambers' book, this week. And what I'd like to do with the first verse of Hebrews 12 is share with you about some clouds of witnesses that we have before us in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 I call the Hall of Fame of Faith. The first one that we want to look at is by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testified about this gift through faith. Though he is dead, he still speaks. That's interesting. How can a dead man speak? Well, evidently Cain and Abel were brothers together, And Adam and Eve told them everything that had happened in their lives, how God created them, how God had them name all the animals, how he created Eve to be a helpmate for Adam, how they took care of the garden, and how God said, you only have one rule, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of wisdom and of evil. That was the forbidden fruit. But of course, you know, just as we have said from our, we have heard from our parents, don't dip your hand in the cookie jar. Or, one time, why did my mother do this? I'll never know, but she used to sit her lemon meringue pies after she baked them out on the porch. Not on a table, but on the floor. And she said, Bill, don't step in it. Well, you know what happened. 
I'll never know why I can't think and hear that before long my foot was in that pie. Anyhow, I got in a little trouble, didn't I? Got a little discipline. So it's kind of interesting how God disciplined Adam and Eve. You know that they ate from the fruit. They know that God came walking in the garden and said, Adam, Eve, have we heard that calling from God? Is he calling us? So God came walking in the coolness of the garden, calling Adam and Eve, and he finally found them. My dear friends, no matter what we do, no matter what we say or how we act, we cannot hide from God. So he found them, he clothed them, and put them out of the garden, lest they eat from the tree of life and live for an eternity in sin. So you see, this is what Cain and Abel had the opportunity to do. As God called them, Abel came, but Cain did not. And so therefore, if you read that story about Cain and Abel, you will, you will find that eventually Cain was punished. And Abel's life still speaks to us today through Scripture. And thanks be to God that we just heard from new life from that young child. What my dad used to tell me is if a young child cries in the worship service, listen. And what I say to parents, if that happens, just walk back and forth across the back of the sanctuary so that they can still hear the sermon and every now and again hear that child's voice. The next person I would like to talk to is, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up for he obeyed the witness that before he was that before he was taken up, he was pleasing to God. So isn't this interesting? Enoch's life started out the first sixty five years, and all of a sudden he and his wife had Methuselah. And obviously this young child impressed Enoch very well because the second verse in Enoch's story is that he walked with God for 300 years. Boy, wouldn't that be exciting to walk with God for 300 years? In my Sunday school class, I heard this many, many years ago. The Sunday school teacher said that Enoch walked with God And how that happened is he did all his chores for the family in the morning. He did all his chores and took care of his property. After lunch, God happened to show up at the gate, and they took a walk. This went on for 300 years. On that last walk, they had walked so far, and all of a sudden Enoch says, I've got to get back home, Lord, and get ready for tomorrow. And God said, we're closer to my home. Come on with me. So you see, as we walk with God, in this famous verse that I love, walk in the light as he himself is in the light. And we have fellowship one with the other. And the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ purifies us. You see, this is what we want. We need to be walking with the Lord at all times and having fellowship with him. The next 
person that I would like to talk about is in verse 7 of Genesis, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 1, verse 7. By faith Noah walked with, uh, um, let me start that again. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heirs of righteousness, which is according to faith. You'll see in our last study enduring Lent, we learned that we are heirs of the kingdom of God. And so Noah, being faithful, did something. He built an ark in his backyard. Kind of a small boat, isn't it? But this ark represents one-eighth of an inch to the foot. And the reason I have this is because during our Christian school years ago, the youth pastor was on vacation and they asked me to do the devotions. So I thought I'd bring Noah's ark to them. Now, if you'd like to walk the size of the ark, start at the curb out here on Herbertsville Road and walk all the way back to the tree line. And that gives you the approximate length of the ark. Now, the width start at this wall in the back of the sanctuary, walk out through that door over on the other side, down the hall, through the new building, until you get to the first wall of the fellowship hall. And that is the width of the ark. So you could actually walk that size sometime. The height is not quite the height of the roof. But the interesting thing about the ark was that once God brought all the animals to Noah and he loaded them on the ark, and then God said, put your family in, no one else came. And we might ask the question, why did God allow that to happen? Well, the first thing we have to realize, it took Noah 120 years to build this ark. So that's a fair amount of time. And he also preached to the whole community, come and be with the ark. So, once they were all loaded, God shut the door. And if you ever want to experience this, go to sight and sound when they have their next time of the presentation of the ark, Noah. And you will hear, when God shut the door, you can hear this horrible bang. And then there's silence in the theater. And then you can hear the sound of rain. And then all of a sudden you can hear the sound of, let me in. But you see, God had already shut the door. And Noah and his family could not reopen it for anyone. So, we have to understand, don't wait until the last moment in your life to invite Christ in. The other two people that I'd like to mention in these clouds of witnesses are Abraham and Sarah. By faith, they had Isaac. And then by faith, Isaac had Jacob. In our most recent study, there was a talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Isn't that interesting? 
Because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And it was changed after he left Laban, had that education that he had with his uncle Laban. And on the way home, he wrestled with an angel one night and said, I will not let go of you until you bless me. So the angel touched his hip, and he was lame in that hip ever since. But his name was Israel. And thus we have the birth of the nation Israel through faith in these clouds of witnesses. What I'd like to do now is share with you my personal cloud of witnesses from this very church. Of course, my family is my first cloud of witnesses. But the first cloud of witness in this church was Bob Rossmeisel. He was a Navy cook. And he must have seen something in me, I don't know why, but he says, Bill, come cook dinners with me. And over the years, he taught me how to cook large meals, mainly for the woman and the child, the mother and child banquet. During those times, he taught me his witness. During those times, he taught me how to be a good husband. During those times, he taught me how to be a faithful father. You see, Bob and Doris did not have children because they could not. But all their children were the people of this church. So I like it when I see Steve talking to those young boys and girls. It's just kind of interesting. Years ago, I had that opportunity by giving the kids a high five. Whoops. You know, I cut a finger off. And you know what happened? The very Sunday that that happened, they came up and said, Bill, I want a high four. (laughs) You see, that was ministry from them to me, you see. So, Bob was a tremendous witness to me. The next one was Roby Parker. He wasn't too outspoken. He wasn't too forceful. But he taught me how to lead by example. And he and I would have great talks together. And his purpose was to raise this church to a good church. Then I was encouraged by Norman Boyd. Yes, the Norman Boyd of Boyd Hall. Way down at the end of the hall by the the, the uh, uh, you know the food pantry it wasn't the food pantry then but he encouraged me he said Bill I see leadership in you and I said no way he said I want you to be president of the United Methodist men well shortly after that time I did become president for quite a few years he encouraged me and caused me to grow in the Lord Now, I know it's Father's Day, but I need to honor two women. Irene Lang, a former pastor's wife, she could teach the Bible, and you better believe I did not miss any of her lessons. Then came along Onita Nofri, another former pastor's wife, and she could also teach the Bible very, very well. But Onita's health was failing, and we could see that. And one Sunday, she was a little late. The next Sunday, she just did not show. But we had Jack Phillipson in our class. And Jack Phillipson was a railroad conductor, and he was retired at this point. 
But Jack was an interesting person because what he did that Sunday when Onita didn't show is he conducted me right into the seat of teaching that class. So I went on and taught the class and then John Thus came along. Well, John should have really been teaching the class, but he nurtured me and helped me and we co-taught, but no one knew that he was involved. A true, godly Christian man. And each one of these people that I wanted to share with you are now gone, but they are still my cloud of witnesses. So what I'd like to share with you is develop your own cloud of witnesses from this church. Examine people and make sure that you know the people that you're lifting up for yourself are people of the Lord. The next passage that I would like to read is Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 7. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Well, my friends, that will never happen, will it? Because there is only one person who shed sin for, or shed blood for the forgiveness of sin. And we just examined that in 1 John 1, verse 7 where he, his blood, his shed blood purifies us. Verse 5, And you have not forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. So you can expect that we are going to be addressed by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. So discipline is very, very important. And I want to say to you this morning that I praise God for having a disciplined mother and father who in turn disciplined me properly. In fact, they used to use something that is used even today. Time out. I used to have to sit on a chair for quietness for an hour for having done something wrong while everybody else was out playing. But... After that, he would review with me what I did wrong. And then we would have a word of prayer together. Verse 6, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son who receives. So, this word scourging is not physical, but it's a spiritual word at this point. So expect discipline from the Lord to the rate of scourging, to develop you and to receive you. And what we have to do is we have to receive it. We have to bring it into ourselves. A simple illustration of receiving. Some of you know that we used to have a big boat and we would never go out without taking another family with us. Every time I took my mom or my uncle, they would always slip up to me and say, Here, Bill, take a 20 for gas. Oh, no, 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 I don't need the money. But you know what I was doing? I was preventing them by not receiving it. I was preventing them from giving. So we have to be careful to always receive because the Lord Jesus Christ wants to give us good life. Verse 7, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son there is whom the father does not discipline? So it's kind of interesting. If you read the rest of this passage, the word discipline is used several times. 
But thus so far in these four, four verses that I just read, discipline is mentioned five times. So, shifting gears a little bit from that portion of the sermon, the next portion is receiving. This word was in my devotional book two different times this week. Come unto me. That's the starting verse of Matthew 11, 28. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I use that most every funeral. I will talk to the family and say, come unto me, come unto me. It says all, not just some, but all. That means everyone. Come unto me. So have you asked Jesus to come unto you for help? I'm sure that each and every one of you has done this at one time in your life or another. If you have done that, this is the very beginning of your born-again experience. Understand that the born-again experience is a process that you have to go through. It doesn't happen at one time. Most people I've heard say, I would love to have an experience like Paul. And I immediately say, no, you don't. Because you see, if you have an experience like Paul, the Lord's going to knock you off of your steed going 50 miles an hour and you don't want that to happen. Or he may blind you for three days and you're driving down the road at 50 miles an hour. You don't want that to happen. So no, you do not want a Paul born again experience. You want your own born again spirit. So I will share this with you. John 1 verses 38 and 39. There are three things mentioned there that are very, very important. The first thing is John himself said, Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sons of the earth or the sins of the earth. So the disciples heard this and two of them started following Jesus. And he turned around and said, whom do you seek? You see, we need to be seeking after Jesus Christ. And he is merely asking, what do you seek or whom do you seek? The next thing that the disciples said to him is, where are you staying? So you see, if you take all of these things together and you say, come unto me, and I'm going to start seeking you, Lord, he is going to say, I'm going to stay in your heart and into the depths of your soul. And you see, this is an ongoing experience that helps you to be born again. It doesn't happen in one time. In John 2, verse 11, or 1 through 11, is the wedding at Cana. And I want to share an invitation. There are four invitations in that particular passage. I want to share one with you that means so much to me. And it's in verse 8, where he says to the servants, draw some water out and take it to the head waiter. You might say, what kind of an invitation is that? Well, when it got to the head waiter, it was the best wine that money could buy. So think about this. Are your actions Christ-like actions, which someone can see as spiritual wine? Or are your words landing into someone's ears as spiritual wine? You see, it's a tremendous invitation that we need to take hold of and that we need to act on. 
So I'd like to switch to John 3, and we have a story about Nicodemus. And some of the teachers give Nicodemus a hard time because he came to Jesus at night quiet. He's like, they say he snuck off. Well, no. I say that we all have to have that private time with Jesus. Slip off sometime morning, evening, or night, or whatever the case may be, and be sure that you have a private time with Jesus. Because Jesus is saying this, truly, truly, whenever you see a verse start out with truly, truly, pay close attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here again, we need to be born again. So Nicodemus says, how can this be? How can this happen? So Jesus gets very specific and Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, my friends, where in the Bible is it first mentioned about the spirit and water? In the very beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surfaces of the deep. And we know who the darkness was, so stay away from darkness. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surfaces of the water. Genesis 1 verse 2 tells us about spirit and water. And you can see that Jesus uses water, didn't he? He had water changed to wine. In John 4, he says, if you'll take a drink of this water, it will become a well within you springing up to eternal life. You want that to be happening, you see. You want that to be happening in your life. So once again, one has to be born with water and the Spirit. How can this happen? Go to Ephesians 5:25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is very important, you see, because Jesus is giving an example. Husband, love your wives, just as also Christ loved the church. So we know that Christ loves the church. The next verse, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. You see, we need to be washed by this Bible that we have. It's a tremendous book, and it can wash and cleanse you. In fact, Jesus said, my blood will cleanse you and purify you. So as you're being washed by the water of the word, as you're in a Bible class, as you're at Sunday school, or as you're here listening to the sermon, the Lord Jesus Christ can spiritually wash you, cleanse you, and bring you to purification, that he might present to himself a church in all her glory, having no spots or wrinkles or any such thing, but such as would be holy and blameless. You see, we can be holy and blameless. How? Stop and think about our brother Tom O'Hearn when he gets up here with his smile. He's teaching us and he says, good morning, sinners. 
Yes, say it loudly, because Romans 3 says we are all sinners. But then Tom says, good morning, saints. Good. We are all saints because Jesus Christ is in our heart, in our souls, and he's working, disciplining us day and night. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray this short prayer with me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen.